Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN, Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? You're trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. Uh, you could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> Good morning, good evening, good night, good day, whatever time of the day it is in whatever part of the world you're listening. This is Richard Lucas with my business partner, Kimon Fontakidis. And today we have a very special guest on the show, Jeevan McCormick, who is the CEO of Scribe Media and has written a book called How a Mixed Race Kid Overcame Racism, Poverty and Abuse to Achieve the American Dream how I got there. And that's what I'm going to tell the, tell the audience about you. But Jevon, could you just tell us how you introduce yourself if you bump into someone at a business networking event or a social do? Just how, how do you describe yourself to a stranger? Oh, wow. I, you know, I, I do a bit of shock and awe. And, 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 and I don't know if this is a good thing or, or a bad thing, but I, I've started being known as the guy whose dad was a, a pimp and drug dealer that had 23 kids. And I, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but uh, people definitely listen. So, you know, yeah, my, my, my dad was a, a pimp and drug dealer. He was a black man. He had 23 kids. My mother was an uh, orphan. She's white. She was raised in an institutional orphanage. And that's what I came into the world to. I, I, you know, went to juvenile prison three different times. I don't have a college degree. I, hell, I don't have a high school diploma. I got a GED. I had to go to summer school to get my GED. So, uh, through, through it all, uh, regardless of my upbringing, the, the fractured upbringing, the chaos, I, I pride myself on having always found a way to, to find success. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, like when we're looking, when we're talking to different people, I mean, then when I, when I read up on you and actually also listened to the James Altucher podcast uh, with you, I mean, you're honestly, you're, you're a really, really interesting person and you could do 10 different podcasts about 10 different topics. As far as I'm concerned, everything from, you know, racism to uh, education to, I mean, there's just so many levels and so many things that you cover. I mean, I, I am honestly like our listeners and viewers are going to be, this is a treat and I do, and, I, and but in order for it to truly be a treat, we're going to have to ask you, um, so basically the purpose of this podcast, what we're Richard and I are really interested in is entrepreneurship and leadership and basically what makes, because people come from all different walks of life and, and all different backgrounds and they, and they do the stuff that we all do basically. And we're trying to dig in and try to understand what is it about these people that makes them entrepreneurs and leaders. But in your case in particular, I think it's super important for you to like, can give us that, um, that background, that color to where to your, I know that, <laughs> I mean, you're probably, you probably do it and you've probably done it so many times to go back and tell, but it's just any, any of the stories, I mean, um, that you can just give a little bit of flavor so people can understand really where, where, where because you know, you, you said it, pimp, and, and people, I don't even know if everybody who listens knows. Knows what a pimp is. <laughs> a pimp in America. Like, so there's like pimp, and then like, just if you can give just a tiny bit. I don't yeah. want to spend too much time on it, because like, I want to talk about like your business sort of like insights and like where you come from, from a business perspective. But I think your background is like, it, it blew me away. That's all I have to say, so. So I'll, 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 to, to your point, I'll take you on a brief, brief journey into the world I, I grew up in. So for those who don't know, my father was a real pimp. He put women on a street corner, 
they sold their bodies and my dad took every dollar. And so he, he was a real life pimp. And like I said, he had 23 children. The most he had by one woman was three. So that lets you know how much he got around. Uh, from the, I, I grew up with my mother. My mother was a single mom. I'm a child of a, an abortion. What I mean by that is when my mother got pregnant the very first time she had an illegal abortion and it was so bad and so painful for her that the next time she got pregnant with me, she took her chances and had a child. And I always thought to myself, man, that must've been a horrible, uh, an abortion when you decide you're going to take a chance and raise a kid. And, and my mom had no business ra raising me. She had no business having a child. And, and, you know, I made peace with that. She, she, she was learning how to raise herself. And at times my mother and I were raising right. each other. Um, at the ages of six, seven and eight years old, you know, I'm really going to throw out some things that kind of define life for me. Um, I was sexually molested by one of my dad's prostitutes. She, she used to uh, force me to perform oral sex on her. Uh, as I said, I was in juvenile prison three different times as a kid and, and no one knew I was there. My mother was in Texas. My dad was in, in England. In fact, that's where, where my dad took off to. And so I was left in juvenile prison. No one knew I was there. Um, but, but, you know, I'll, I'll share a couple of things that really jumped out for me. Um, of lessons that I learned. One in particular, uh, being a mixed race child in the seventies, you know, black people didn't like me because I was half white, white people didn't like me because I was half black and I was never white enough. I was never black enough. And so on one occasion, my mother and I were waiting in line for our, our welfare, our, our monthly allotment of food stamps. And an older white lady looked down at me and then she looked at my mother and she spit in my mother's face and she called her a nigger lover. And I remember at eight years old, that moment really, it, it helped tell me and explain to me that, okay, everyone is not going to like you just on the fact that you're half white, half black. And so I owned it right there. I, ne I never spent my, my entire life trying to make everyone. That like right there, just to interrupt is like we, because we, Richard and I have talked on previous episodes as well. But I mean, being liked, I'd say that that's one of the fatal flaws of the egocentric totally. uh, founder, whatever, the business person who wants to be loved by their employees and stuff like that. And anyway, sorry, but that, that just no, it's, a little as a little a grain of, of uh, it, it's, it's huge. It, it has served me well in, in life and business because it, it is everyone's not going to like you and, and you have to accept that they're not going to like every decision you make. They're not going to like every direction that you, you point to. And so I accepted that back at eight years old. Uh, one of the big things that came out for me recently is I realized my first encounter with entrepreneurship uh, came from my dad. And I, I was nine years old and one weekend he picked me up and we were out uh, collecting money from prostitutes. And my dad pulls up to the first prostitute and he cracks the window and, and it was cold outside. And, and, and I always say this, every time I tell this story, I can smell the heater in the car. And so my dad cracks the window and the first prostitute hands a stack of cash through the window. And she says, can I come in? I, I made my count. I made enough money. And my dad, you know, real encouraging. No, no, get back out there. You're on a roll. Come on, you, you can make some more. And so he rolled up the window. We drive off. We go to the next prostitute. He cracks the window. 
uh, she slides her money through, which was considerably less than the first lady. And my dad lost it. Get your ass back out there. Starts using every foul language, every name he can call her. And when he rolled up the window, I remember sitting there in the front seat and thinking to myself, and I had this conversation. I said, huh, I wonder if I was nicer to the prostitutes and I let them keep part of the money, could I make more money in volume because more prostitutes would want to work for me? And I was nine years old. And, and yep. then I even took it down to a competition level of, hmm, okay, competitors aren't going to like me, other pimps, because I'm going to start taking their, their women. And that, that was my first introduction to uh, entrepreneurship, if you will, or scaling a company. And a lot of people don't like that story. I've, I've been criticized. Did you share it? Did you, you didn't share your insights with your father, though. No, no, uh, <laughs> I, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't. I didn't share. You know, I was. I was going to be a hostile takeover, but. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, a lot of people don't like that story, and I've been criticized for. But you know, that's the world I grew up in, and I, I don't apologize to anyone. No, I, don't I, think, learned, I don't think. Yeah. I learned I my lessons where I learned my lessons, and I, I'm glad that I'm able to look back at my life, and find the positives and not dwell on being a victim and oh my gosh why why was i born to a pimp father and why was i molested i, I don't dwell on being a victim i don't dwell on my past because you can't change it I, I no matter how much you sit on it you can't change it so that's a little bit of the the world i grew up in like i said um i, I read incredibly slow at, at the age of 15 i tested on a fifth and sixth grade level uh, I still don't hold a pencil the right way, whatever whatever that is. But fortunately, uh, and, pencils are are going out of style. Yeah, you know. Well, I, and, and I type incredibly slow, so it, it's funny. You know, I, I tell people all the time, "Hell, I can't spell." So thank God for the man or woman that invented spell check. Uh, thank God for the man or woman that invented Audible, because I can listen to books at one point five speed, and it is incredible. Yeah, I, I'm just going to jump in here because I, I I really would encourage everyone listening to this to 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 buy the book. It's a, obviously we'll put a link. It's a really great great read. And in the final chapter, you talk about how you want to teach juveniles in detention how the world works, and you you, you give a list of people you're grateful for and the acknowledgements you're grateful to. You say your dad taught you how to hustle, but I was wondering, do you think that? I mean, your life was so different from and most of the people who listen to this podcast are educated, white, upper middle class <laughs> guys who have so little in common with your background. I, and I, Sorry, maybe I'm wrong about this. I hope that everyone will listen. And this is a story for everyone. But do you feel that you, you're really qualified to say how the world works? Do you think the way because you, your, your lessons are really universal? And I happen to really agree with them. But your background was so different. Do you think that you really know how the world works or is it just your perspective? Do you think your laws are for everyone? Um, you know, I, I believe everything is, is people's perspective. And I'll give you a great example of this. I have four children, seven, five, three, and two. Their perspective of the world is gonna be far different than my perspective. <laughs> they, they live in a gated community. They go to private Christian school. There's always food in the refrigerator. <laughs> their, their perspective on life is way, my seven-year-old, she knows what the Waldorf story is. <laughs> and, and so she, they, they live in a different world. So their perspective is different. Now I will say this, just because your perspective is different 
the lessons remain the same. And so, yes, I don't care if you come from a two-parent home and an affluent neighborhood, manners, respect, showing, saying hello to everyone, attention to detail, punctuality. I don't care where you fall on the economic ladder. I don't care what your race is. The, the perspectives all may be different, but the lessons remain the same. That's what I was I expecting. <clears throat> sorry, sorry, but I, I, I really noticed that. And I think one of the, th the things you talk, you talk about, you know, how people should apply for jobs and, and get jobs and explaining that the corporate world is just like a different world compared to the hood or different neighborhoods. And so I got the, the, the impression that you're, you encourage people to take the world as it is and adapt to it rather than just impose yourself on it. So, so you know, it's um, here's here's a great example. I, I don't know if you 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 all uh, read this. So, you know, here in the states, back in what May June of last year, we we had the big uh, protest and we, with the George Floyd incident, and that was a, a major issue. And, and let me go backwards before I, I go into that story. Back when I was in my early twenties, and this goes into what you said about adapting to society. Back when I was in my early 20s, I was trying to obviously start my career, get out there, get on uh, calendars, get some appointments. And for whatever reason, I could not get on people's calendars. One gentleman finally got on the phone with me and he said to me, he said, hey, how did you get a black first name? Because my, my first name's Javon. And how did you get an Irish last name? Now, what was funny to me was I never knew my last name was Irish. Here I was in my 20s and I thought, oh, wow, I just learned something. And but when I hung up off the call, I realized, oh, I'm not getting on calendars because people are looking at my first name and they're not giving me a chance. So immediately my, my full name is Javon Thomas McCormick. Immediately I said, OK, I'm going to go by JT McCormick. And I'll be damned the next week, I start getting on people's calendars, I start getting appointments. So I adapted to society yeah. to get to where I wanted to go. Now, fast forward back to May, June of last year during the, the, the riots, the protests and, and the George Floyd uh, incident. Um, I saw a lot of what I called fake status signaling, blackout Tuesday on social media, uh, we were arguing about a syrup bottle. I mean, my God, a syrup bottle. What, what change is that actually bringing for anyone? And then I read an article where it highlighted that there were only three black uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. And I said, huh, interesting. So I, I looked at who the, the three were. Kenneth Frazier, Marvin Ellison, and Roger Ferguson. Three very ambiguous, uh, you know, there's not, a, the, the names are not ethnic, if you will. And so I thought to myself, interesting. You know what? I'm going to start going by Javon again. And the reason why I did it was I actually wanted to bring, in my opinion, some actual change. I wanted kids that grew up in the, the hood, the neighborhoods, the low economic communities that I came from that the Martavias, the Laquandas, the Ravantes, I wanted all of them to see, hey, guess what? A Javon made it to the CEO chair. And I, I wanted to be where it's not uncommon that you can go to work and work next to a Javon, not just a JT. That's awesome. And thank goodness that you made that decision. I mean, that's like, just because, you know, it's basically, it's who you are. You, you're Javon, right? I mean, that's who you are. So 
you shouldn't be ashamed of being Jivan, but that, I mean, that's crazy that what you had to face. Um, basically the racism, uh, the system, I guess the systemic racism and in, 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 in just even trying to do your job, basically a basic sales call. Um, I'd like to just jump back a little bit because as I said, this for me, it's the entrepreneurial journey. So um, we will talk, you're the CEO of a really cool company that I, we definitely have to talk about that. But how did you get, so, I mean, you gave us, you sort of painted the picture. It was tough, uh, really tough um, growing up. And then there wasn't, you know, it, there wasn't much education. You didn't have access, I guess, to a lot of education. But what happened? I mean, you said you spent time in, in juvenile. So where did you, there, I mean, there must be a couple of steps uh, before, and I'm sure there's even then more steps later, but like the big steps, how did you get out of that situation and start just like, yeah, a little bit of just about from the career path. Like, how did you how did you do it? How did you get out of there and then start to get into sort of I assume like the corporate world or the business world? Um, yeah, in so, a couple words. So, so I appreciate that because you you said something that I really appreciate. Most people will ask me, "What's the one thing?" My God, it was never one thing. And so you said, "What were the steps? What what what?" Ha there were multiple things that took place. And, you know, one, one of the things that I can say is this, my first job was cleaning toilets at, at a restaurant. That was my first job. And I remember standing there looking at the toilets and it took me a long time to share this with people because I never wanted to give my dad credit. When I was a kid, I remember my dad saying, no matter what you do in life, be the best at it. If you were going to sweep the streets for a living, be the best street sweeper. Now he could have given me a little more to aspire to, but I, I got, I got the point you, you was be it. the best. Yes. So I was cleaning those toilets and I remember looking down, they were filthy, they were nasty. And I said to myself, okay, if this is my job, I'm going to be the best at it. I'm going to have the cleanest toilets in Texas. So that's what I committed to. Then when I had my other job uh, at the insurance company, this is where the world really opened up for me because I got to see executives. I got to see how people interacted, how people shook hands, how they conducted themselves. And really a game changer for me at the insurance company is this may go, this may be for me one of my favorite stories when it comes to, to business and where I learned some things. So I was the mailboy, I was a filer and I'm pushing my cart and I go past a, a, a sign and it says, free lunch and learn 401k. And I, all I saw was free lunch. I'm like, yeah, I am there. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting a free lunch. I am going to. And so I, I start, you know, I tell myself, okay, go into that today. And I'm pushing my car and, and a lady walks by me and I say to her, I said, excuse me, do you know where conference room 401k is? <laughs> <laughs> because I thought it was a conference room. I didn't That's realize. awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. And so I went to this, this free lunch and learn on 401k <laughs> and I sat there and heard two of the greatest words in the history of mankind, compound interest. And I was hooked. <laughs> and after that, I just immersed myself on all things stock. How, how do Ooh. you make, how do you turn a hundred into a thousand, a thousand into 10? And that's where my, my real lesson of making money started happening was, oh, invest, invest. So, 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 so this is interesting. So how old were you? Just give us a, like, I want to get the spectrum here. How, how old were you at that time? 19. 
Okay. And so, and you actually at 19, did you say at that point, cause this, did you start saving and investing at that point? Oh yeah. At 19? Oh yeah. Er, every... that, that already is already way different than, uh, and like, you know, you talk about the gated, your privileged kids and like, we have the same situation. Like if you can just dream to teach your kids that, that same lesson, you know, at that age, I mean, that's, that's, that's a real, I mean, that, that, how do you do that? And, and how did it, how did you, how did you end up just I mean, I, that see, this is where there's nature versus nurture. I, you did not. Nobody taught you that. And what, nobody taught. What no. Made you, it, what made you want to do that? I, mean, I, I, mean, know, it's, I got hooked. I, I couldn't yeah. believe that it, it was. Um, and I said this. This was the mind in, in the environment I came from. I remember saying to myself, "Oh my God, this is like a legalized drug deal. You can take a hundred dollars and turn it into a thousand. I'm like, this can't be real. And then once I got into it, I'm like, Wow, this is real. And, and so, uh, and, and then I took it a step further. I could not believe that all the information was free. Every uh, financial, quarterly financial on Fortune 500 companies, it's all public. You can study the companies, you can find out what they're doing, what they're anticipating, their forecast. And I just fell in love. I'm like, they give you free information and you can turn a hundred dollars into a thousand. I'm like, this is, this is wrong. Somebody's got to be coming back to pick up this money. And, and so I, like I said, I, even now you see how excited I get. I love stock investing. I love studying companies, leadership, why people do the things they do, why they make the decisions they make. Why in the hell is GameStop trading so high today? Um, I, I love just the, the whole uh, environment of, of money-making business was that a side hustle or was that like was that the main did you go did you because i actually don't know the story completely uh did it was, was a, that side a side hustle, hustle? yeah okay, that I, was, was a side hustle. I was still pushing my cart and i was still yeah. filing my my first job i made um ten thousand at the insurance company i remember i made ten thousand dollars a year it was roughly eight hundred dollars a month i was still living with my mom she made me pay half of my check to her and the other half was for my my you know my own expenses and then from there I just took money and, and invested. My my first investment horrible worst investment ever. I invested in government bonds. <laughs> well and I and I quickly learned okay not going into government bonds. <laughs> well and just just for listeners who don't know the American system a 401k is like a retirement plan. There are certain certain tax advantages if you're an American to invest in a a 401k yeah, you can uh, contribute some of your salary and the, and the employer matches it uh, and, um, and you get some tax breaks on the gains and stuff like that and so um that that but i said in a sense with your with your your father doing the doing the job the business he did you were in a business environment from an early age even if it wasn't a business you'd advise people people to do so i'm wondering do you think you got that kind of entrepreneurial lesson like buying selling you know do you, do you think that was you were soaking that up in the same way that someone whose who's mum or dad is a street trader, they're surrounded by business. You must have got that a little bit, do you suppose? Uh, uh, totally. And, and if you, you allow me, uh, so many people don't like this example that I'm going to give, but there are so many lessons that come from the environment I grew up in and, and drug dealers. And this, this is something that so many people, I, I receive a lot of criticism for this example, but you know what? It's the truth. If you look at a drug dealer, a street drug dealer, the first rule on the street is they will give you the first sample for free. 
The reason being is they want you to get hooked on the drug so you keep coming back and spending money. Now I'm going to walk you through the, the, the environment, the ecosystem of a pharmaceutical rep here in the States. What do pharmaceutical reps do for a living? They pass out free samples. They go to the doctor's office. They pass out free samples. The doctor gives the, the free sample to the patient. The patient ends up liking it. Then the patient comes back to the doctor's office, asks for a prescription. The prescription is sent to the drugstore. So then Walgreens gets their cut. Then Walgreens sends it to the insurance company. The insurance gets their cut. And then finally, Pfizer or whatever pharmaceutical company, the top, the drug cartel, the drug lord gets their money. People hate that example, but that's the ecosystem of a drug deal on the street. The only difference, the only difference on the street, there's only three levels. There's the corner drug dealer, there's the city uh, kingpin who, who runs the city, and then there's the cartel that's shipping it in generally from, from another country. That's it, there's three levels. But in the pharmaceutical world, we've made it so convoluted because everybody's got to get a, a everybody gets a, a piece, crumb. Mm -hmm. right? And so you've got everyone from Walgreens to insurance companies to the doctor's office to the pharmaceutical rep, and and I tell people this all the time: if kids in the lower economic communities where I come from, some of those kids that are that are street drug dealers, if they knew that there was a profession where you could leg legally hand out free samples, you get a, 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 an American Express card and an expense account and a car and a cell phone. And if you're really good, you get a bonus at the end of the a year and they give you an award. If they knew that existed, you'd have a lot more pharmaceutical reps. No, I, 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 actually, I actually agree. I, I think you're touching on something though. And it's, it's um, so I grew up in, I was born in New York. I grew up in New Jersey, but it was definitely more of an urban. Uh, and obviously, I, I was like a middle-class kid, but I grew up in an environment that was more, whatever. It was urban. Let's say it was like there were cities, and 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 I had to deal with the city, and that, and 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 then I went to college in Wisconsin in the Midwest, and I just noticed that transition right there that I was more what we would call street smart. Now I wasn't probably anywhere near as street smart as you were growing up, but I was proud, but I was, I was definitely more street smart. And I just, I wondered even just that concept when I just see employees or people that I want to hire, there's just people that, that just, they just get stuff faster just because instinct, like it's instinct. They were, they grew up. And, and so I'm just wondering if like, maybe we're missing a big opportunity in somehow educating and, and some of the kids and some of these I mean, maybe totally. underprivileged environments. I mean, that 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 they can do something, you know, more, I, I much would, more. Than I'd say do. to you, a hundred and ten percent. And one of the big initiatives for me is, is I call it show and tell. I believe, again, here in the states, your uh, ninth grade year, your freshman year of high school, there should be a class that's called show and tell. Show me attention to detail. Tell me why it's important. Show me an attorney. Tell me how I can become one. Show me a pharmaceutical rep. Tell me how I can become one. The number one problem in the lower economic communities, as far as I'm concerned, is uh, we don't know what we don't know. If I don't know, think about it. It wasn't until I was 34 years old that I knew what a barista was. If I if there's no Starbucks in my community, how right. am I supposed to know that I can become a barista? And, and let's call it what it is. Starbucks is a good job. They pay right. well. 
They have benefits. They have a 401k. They'll pay for you to go to college. But there's no Starbucks in the lower economic communities. There's no Whole Foods in the lower economic communities. It's a damn shame that these communities know what a food desert is because there's no stores, but they don't even know what organic food is. So, so many of these kids have the street smarts, the mentality, the, the ability to think very fast and process, right. but there's no, none of them know what what's possible so you're gonna how do you sorry go ahead Richard. no i was just going to say that um I, I i know from reading your book that you're engaged in this sort of helping teach kids about the rules of life the way things work and i was just going to say that I'll, after this interview i'll send you this some as some of the entrepreneurship teaching I do is involved in taking short YouTube clips out of popular movies, looking for lessons of entrepreneurship. And I think that one of the things you can do is like educate yourself by just looking at the same things as everyone else in a different way. Because a lot of very wealthy people, they never considered how a Starbucks works from a business point of view. They just go there, they get the coffee, but they don't think about the rent, the wages, the margin, the customer service, how to make it all work. And that I think sometimes it's, you know, in a way, it's just seeing the world in a different way. So do you, and I think part of what you're doing is helping the kids maybe not see the world the way, it, well, it is see it a different way. It's see it the way it is from the point of view of the other people, right? Totally. So, so seeing it uh, the same way in a different way. Here's a great example. Um, when, I, when I would go in and mentor the high-risk youth, I would express to them, dress code is the same in corporate America as it is in the lower economic communities or quote unquote, the, the hood. In certain communities, you don't wear certain colors. You don't wear certain outfits, certain hats, logos, because they represent something different in each community. Well, just like when you go to work, you don't wear your shorts and a t-shirt into a board meeting. And, and so when I, when I put the two together to try to explain to them that dress code happens in the community, but it also happens in corporate America, then it starts to make sense. It's, it's just a matter of putting it in perspective for people to understand. And, and there again, we go back to the word perspective. So, um... Here you are, the mail room guy, starting with your $400, half or $100 a month going into the stock market. And then how did you, so what happened after that? So you start, okay, so you, you guys, so clearly there's a passion for investing, but like, then what else did you do? Like, just get, bring, I, us, to, like, bring us to scribe. <laughs> like, all right, all slowly, right. so slowly, I'll, I'll, slowly, I'll, but it's uh, slowly, but like, just take us there. Like, so that, what happened next? So I'll bring you to, to describe. So I, as you said, I, I started wanting to get my side hustle on and make more money. So I, at the time I was into to working out quite a bit and I started to personal train. And one of the gentlemen that I used to personal train, he said, hey, you should go work for my dad. And I remember saying to him, because again, this is the world that I came from. I said, I don't know what your dad does. I said, all I know is you have an enormous house. There's a ton of cars out front. I said, as far as I know, your dad's a drug dealer. And again, because that's that's the world that I came from. And he starts laughing. He goes, no, I assure you, my dad's not a drug dealer. And um, he said, my dad owns payday loans. And I would say, huh, what's a payday loan? And he explained it to me, whatever. So I go to work th at this company. Uh, and, and what intrigued me was the gentleman who founded the company, he started with one payday loan 
And at the time when I went to work for him, he had over 450 of them throughout the country. And I was like, wow. Okay, I don't know what a, I don't know what a pay. I actually am so, American and I so do not know a, what a payday loan is. A payday loan is basically, let, let's say you make uh, $500 a week, but it's Tuesday and you're short on cash. If you can verify that you make that you'll get paid on Friday five hundred dollars, they'll advance you the money for obviously a big fee, and okay. and so what would happen is the fees are outrageous on, on these. So things. like from the annual interest point of view, it's yes. like twenty five percent or something or thirty five percent or whatever. Yeah, I mean here in in uh, in the states, uh, Oregon. Where they don't have uh, interest rate laws. So the interest rates were astronomical. Uh, some of these interest rates, I mean, you're talking 400% uh, on some oh, of these. Okay. Yeah, it, wow. it was it was damn near uh, mafia-like, if you will. So, yeah. uh, but I, got, I, I went to work for them. I was there nine months. I worked in the back uh, office. Uh, and, and my role was to uh, proof reports. This, again, this is back in the mid-90s. So you would take a deposit slip in a, a computer printed out um, uh, sheet that told you how much money went through that office. And you had to match up the deposit slip to make sure everything was accurate. And you sat there and you did that for eight hours a day. So finally, I, I got bored and I said to myself, okay, how many reports have been proofed? That's what it was called, proofed in one, one day. Someone told me it was like 42. And so on my drive home that day, I said to myself, okay, the next day I come in, I'm gonna smash that record. And I did 71 reports the next day. About two months later, the CEO, the owner of the company, calls me into his office. And he, he was a country gentleman. Um, and he says, hell, Jovan, never pronounced my, my name right. <laughs> hell, Jovan, what do you want to do, son? Obviously, you don't want to prove reports. And he had this awesome picture behind his desk. I was in his office. He had this awesome office. And in the picture was him and the vice president's. And I look and I said, I want to be in the picture. And he looks, oh, that's at, awesome. he looks at me and he says, hell, son, you got some balls on you, don't you? <laughs> and I, love I, the, I love the Texas. That's <laughs> where he was from. He's, he's from Texas. And uh, Mr. Gentry, love that man. Uh, and, and so I said, well, well, sir, you asked me what I wanted to do. So that's what I want to do. I'm going to be in the picture. And he said, okay, I tell you what, I'm going to start sending you out to other offices throughout the country. Fast forward through that, I, I started developing a little reputation for myself that if I went out to these offices that had problems, that I could get them turned around. So then at, at 23 years old, he calls me back in his office. He said, hell son, I'm gonna give you three options. Do you wanna go be a VP in Vegas, Louisiana, or Oregon? I had been to Vegas, Ugh, no, didn't, didn't want that. I had spent considerable time in Louisiana, didn't want that. I had never been to Oregon. So, so I, go, I go up to Oregon, he said, go check it out for the weekend. And I go up there, I literally, this the, the, honest God, I get off the plane, I smell the air, I see the trees and it's January, like the worst right. month in Oregon. Right. And I, and I stopped right there at the airport. I go, I want to move here. I hadn't, even, <laughs> I hadn't seen the city. I'm like, this is beautiful. I want to come here. And so I went there as 23. I had three finance offices I was responsible for. And I'll, I'll fast forward through that. Oh, but I got to tell you this story, though. Um, 30 days after I got there, 30 days, I get a call from Mr. Gentry. 
And he says, hell, Jovan, how's it going up there, son? And, and I said, great. He said, okay, I want you to go down to Eugene, Oregon and open a new office. He said, you got any questions for me? No, sir. He said, you good? Yes, sir. Hung up the phone. I sat back in my chair and I remember saying to myself, where the hell is Eugene, Oregon? <laughs> <laughs> it is in the middle of, I've been there. It's in the middle. It's south of Portland. Yes. In the middle of the... <laughs> but what was crazy is I said, where's Eugene, Oregon? And I go, how do you open an office? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. How do you open yes. an office? <laughs> and so I said, okay, step one, find Eugene, Oregon. So, okay, found Eugene, Oregon. Step two, drive to Eugene, Oregon. So I get to Eugene. I sit and I pull into this parking lot and I go, okay, what do I do now? Okay, step three, find a location. So I start driving around and that's not really working well, but then I see something that says for lease. I said, huh, okay, I'll call that number. Then I found a real estate agent, so on and so forth. But then it hit me when I was setting up this office. I go, wait a minute. I've got three office, offices that look exactly alike in, in uh, Portland. Just make right. this one look the same. So fast forward, uh, I got there. I had three offices. When I left, I had eight. I, I wow. had opened three more and bought out two competitors. And But it was a the business. I, I'm forever grateful to Mr. Gentry but it keeps people in debt. And I yeah, just, it's, I, yeah. I couldn't, in, in good conscience, um, it, it was But you learned, you learned oh, fundamental business lessons, it sounds like, fundamental business lessons. It was incredible. He gave a 23-year-old kid a chance. The only thing the home office was responsible for was payroll. Everything else I was responsible for, deposits. No, that's an education, hiring. that's your education right there. Yes. Hiring, firing. Uh, if someone broke into an office, I had to get up at two in the morning and go to that office. So every piece I got to learn, and it was a great education. Uh, from there, I walked away, moved back to Texas, and I got into mortgages. And here's how I got into mortgages. I, I saw an ad, and it said they, they were hiring a loan processor. And I go, hmm, I don't know what that is. So I sent my resume in. A uh, lady calls me, and she goes, wait a minute, you were running uh, payday loans and you had eight of them. And I go, yes. She goes, okay, I'll hire you. I said, well, I don't know any of it. I said, will you teach me? And I said, but I didn't know payday loans either. And she goes, yeah, I'll teach you. So I learned how to be a loan processor. Then I learned how to be a loan officer. Then I watched a um, account executive come in from Countrywide Home Loans and they would come in and pick up our loans and then take them over to Countrywide. And I asked the account executive one day, what do you do? And, and she told me, I said, are you guys hiring? And, and she goes, yeah, we actually are. So I applied, got a job at Countrywide Home Loans. And so I, I got into the mortgage business, loved it. I, I shared the story. It, it's one of my favorites. Um, I actually got to meet Angelo Mazzello, the uh, founder of Countrywide Home Loans. At one point, oh, wow. country, Countrywide Home Loans was the largest home lender in the world. And he founded the company on a card table in front of the courthouse in California. The way I got to meet Angelo Mazzello was, and I, I know I'm a bit ahead of myself, but just follow me here. Uh, when my book came out, uh, we had a book launch party. 
And a lady comes up to me and she goes, Hey, I read your book. And I saw in there, you used to work at Countrywide. And I went on and on. I loved Countrywide. If it wasn't for the credit <laughs> crisis, I would have still been working there. Angela Mazzello was the greatest thing ever. And then she goes, Angela Mazzello is my grandfather. I'm like, no. And she, <laughs> no way. And she texts him right there. And I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Long story short, she arranged for me to meet Angelo Mazzello. I got oh, to fly awesome. out to his house in California. I got to meet with him, take a picture with him. And, and it was, so for me, it was a, a massive highlight. So during this time when uh, the payday and then the countrywide, were you um, still investing? Was that like, were you still very- Oh, hell yeah. I find this piece to be very interesting also as well. So it's not only that you were this like extreme go-getter, like, uh, cause I personally am like not great with like, I, I know how to do personal finance, but I'm not personally like, yeah, I'm not like, I'm not great at that side of it. But like, I, I'm always impressed with people that are able to like, they're, they're able to like save and they're very like careful. And so like, so you were not only going out and doing all this stuff, you were also on the side, you were saving whatever significant, I assume significant parts of your earnings oh, yeah. and investing it in the stock market. I, so I had run up my... Uh, investment portfolio to over a million dollars. And in 2007, 2008, during the credit crisis, yeah. when it all came crashing down, I lost every dime. All of lost, it? Lost it all. I was, I was negative broke. I had to call my uh, stepdad and borrow money to pay my rent. I had to call so my you're best like friend. So you were like futures, your options, what were you? Uh, 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 actually, I, I made my money in stock, but what had happened was I started playing a game that I didn't fully understand. The the, the house flipping, the the all the, you know, the getting the okay. thing where I did, that's not where I made my okay, money. Okay, okay, okay. Oh know, my you, God, that's crazy. You made a million, that's just crazy. Made a million and, and lost it all. Lost the investment portfolio, was gone. And like I said, I had to borrow money from my, my best friend and my, my stepdad. What was important about that time was I, I had to look at myself and look at my character because I was not a good person. I couldn't hold a relationship. I, I was a monster in relationships mm. with, with women. And it was one of those things where I had to look at myself in the mirror and, and own, hey, you're a lot like your dad. And I never wanted to be like my dad. And, and I'll be damned, it, it, even when I looked in the mirror and had that conversation, I had recalled one, one weekend when my dad had us, me and, and several of my brothers and sisters, he came home, we were, for whatever reason, we were up really late. And my dad comes walking in the door and he leans on this bookshelf and he looks at all of us, doesn't say a word, he just stares at us. And we were a little nervous. We thought, oh, hell, we're, we're not supposed to be awake. And, and, but we sat there. And then he says to us, he goes, hey, don't ever do this to yourself. Don't ever end up like me. Don't be like me. Fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at this, all I knew was my dad wasn't always there for me. When he said he would pick me up, most of the time he didn't show up. He was a pimp. He was a drug dealer. Unfortunately, most of the things that I knew about my dad were negative. So what I heard was, don't be like me. And that's what became ingrained in my mind. But there I was, 2007, 2008, and there was a lot of me that was just, it's just incredible like Incredible how that works. We all, any issues we have with our parents, we, it's almost like you can't escape it. You do become your parents to some extent, and then you have to, the self-awareness to basically to be self-aware and to be like, hold on a second. 
This is yeah. happening, basically. So, so then you, managed, you became aware. Okay, sorry, Richard. Kate, Kate became aware. Uh, I was broke. And, and here's what was funny. Uh, I, I tell people this. They're like, oh, my God, what was it like to, to have all that money and then lose it all and then be broke? And, and I say to people, well, that actually wasn't the hard part because I knew what broke looked like. I was friends with broke. I grew up broke. I, it, it was like, hey, broke, how you doing again? I didn't think I'd see you, but hey, I'm back. Um, and, and so the broke part was a bit easy. What was hard is realizing that I had a horrible character. And again, I, I was not good in relationships and I didn't know how to hold one. So just like everything else in my life, I, I had to teach myself, okay, how do you have a, a great relationship? How do you have a great character? How, how do you, you know, so I started over from there. Um, I ended up getting a job as a salesperson. And then uh, I got another job as a salesperson at a software company. And this is right, right before Scribe. So I got a job at a software company and I was selling enterprise software and had no clue how to sell enterprise software. Um, but I was the lowest paid person in the company. I, I was employee number 13. I sat on a fold out metal chair in a storage closet. And we ended up uh, in two years, I ended up becoming the president uh, of the company. And we scaled that company from 13 people to well over 100 people. We ended up with offices. We, from a storage closet, we ended up with offices in Austin, Houston, Dallas, and Monterey, Mexico. Wow. And it, it was awesome uh, to, to be surrounded by just talented software engineers and talented people a, as a whole. And that's where I really it was introduced to culture. I was introduced to putting people first. And five years into it, I was traveling a lot and I said, okay, if something happens to me, my kids would not know where I come from. They wouldn't know my backstory. They wouldn't know that we don't know where our last name comes from. Right. So I, so I set out on this journey of how do I write my book? And I reached out to my LinkedIn network. Someone introduced me to the two co-founders of Scribe and they came over to the, the software office and we sat in this big conference room and, and they said, oh yeah, you definitely have a book. And at the end of the meeting, uh, one of the co-founders says to, to me, he says, hey, as you go through our process, will you give me feedback? He goes, you've built an amazing company here. And I said, no one person builds a great company. It, it takes a team of people to build a great company. And he said, wow, okay, well, will you give me feedback on our process? I said, yeah, sure. So as I'm going through it, I'm giving him feedback back and forth. And, and uh, then one day he asked, okay, hey, would you consider being an advisor? Or, or for our company. Yeah, why not? And then I get invited to an executive meeting. And then the two co-founders invite me to Starbucks one day. They said, hey, um, if we give you a ton of equity, would you come be the, the CEO? And, and, and it was in that moment, I remember saying to myself, okay, let me get this straight. I have been the president of a software company and I can't write code. Now I can have the opportunity to be the CEO of a publishing company and I can't spell and I barely can read. I'm like, I'm like God bless America. I am in. <laughs> so here I am, man. And now we, we, the, the company's been around, uh, scribes have been around six years. I've been here for five of them. Uh, we've worked with over 1800 authors. Uh, 
Uh, and the, the thing that I really am, am proud of for us as a company is the culture awards that we have, have won. Uh, we were named the best company culture in America by Entrepreneur Magazine. Uh, we have no debt, no loans, no venture capital money, no private equity, and we're profitable. So I tell people all the time, we're, we're a real unicorn, not like we work. <laughs> right, exactly. We work is a great story. Uh, well, people who know about the business world know, know, know what that means. And I, I, just before we move on to like the, the, the future, I noticed like you weren't afraid to answer. You weren't afraid to ask very basic questions like going through you, different people. You said, how does how do payday loans work? How does this work? You weren't afraid and you asked questions. And do you think that curiosity and like that seems to me like a key entrepreneurial skill. It's like you're curious, you want to understand and you're not afraid. And do, do, you, do you think I'm right about that or do you think? Oh, this Richard, I, I so appreciate you highlighting that. I, I'll tell you how how much questions mean to me. In our uh, values and principles here at Scribe, it's one of our principles, ask questions. It, I have literally built a, a career out of asking questions and I gotta give love to my third grade teacher, Mrs. Dedeck. She said, there are no stupid or dumb questions. And man, I've been asking questions ever since. And even to this day, I'll sit in a room, I, most 98% uh, of the people in this company at, at Scribe all have degrees. Most have advanced degrees. We have people who have Ivy League degrees. So I sit in these rooms as a CEO and they'll start using vocabulary words that I have no damn clue what they're talking about. And I'll pause the meeting. I'll say, hold on, stop. What does that mean? And, and I express this to people when they interview with this, when they, they come in. I said, look, we all have worked at a company where you can get fired for asking too many questions. I said, we've all been at one of those places. I said, but here, you can actually get fired for not asking enough questions. Because if you make a mistake, a mistake is okay. But if you make a mistake because you were too prideful and you didn't want to look dumb or stupid, so you didn't ask a question, this isn't a culture fit for you because we truly believe, ask questions, ask them all, doesn't matter. Whatever the question is, ask it. I mean, I, I think that that just is a little takeaway for everybody. I mean, and we hope that there's always budding and future entrepreneurs and people that want to go into leadership. I strongly agree with that. I, I'm actually similar to you. And I think that ego is a problem for people. I think people are embarrassed. They don't want to appear that they, they're stupid. They don't know. I, I'm just like you. I constantly ask questions. I ask questions that I think are the stupidest question in the room. Everybody knows. And I think you need to, I think you need to be feel comfortable. You feel, you obviously feel comfortable in your own skin. And I think that that's, I think that's, that that's the secret to that. But I want to ask you something about it. This is this is this is the funny one between me and Richard because uh, we have I think I think we may have varying opinions about education. Richard comes from a his father was a professor at Oxford, um, and he came he, he went to Cambridge. So those are like pop to the top. Ego ego swells. And I know and I went to university. I went to university. Um, uh, I went to the University of Wisconsin Madison. So I think I got a college degree, but I didn't do. For me, college and my education was 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 sort of a joke. I mean, in terms of like what I did when I was in college and what I learned and what I got out of it. So you come from this, you come from a very perspective. I'm just curious, like like and, and so I like I, I have plenty of people in my company that I hired that never graduated. Like for me, graduating from college means absolutely nothing. I absolutely do not put any it is not a prerequisite to work in my company at all. It's there's it, it way more important things than that. And I'm just curious what your take is on that coming, you know, from <laughs> your background. I assume it's probably similar to mine, but I'm just curious. So just a couple words on that. 
So here, here's how I answer that question. Again, I, I mentioned earlier, I have four children. If my four children want to go to college, I am, I am beyond happy and blessed that I can provide that for them to be able to go to college and, and not have to have student loans and student debt. So I, I would encourage them if that's something they want to do. If one of them says, dad, I want to start a company, I'm going to assist them in, in doing that. So for me, here's my, my thought on it. I do believe that some professions do require you to go to college. You an want attorney, your doctor to have been. Right, right. An attorney, a doctor, an, an engineer. You, you kind of might want to know, know some of the, those things. Um, but if you're just going to college to get a liberal arts degree, no. <laughs> I mean, it's... Um, and, it's a good time. <laughs> here, here's, well, and here's what's funny about it. I, to, to your point right there, this is what I've said to people. And my children will be one of these people that I'm going to speak of. So, you know, if you're offended, too bad, because I'm talking about my own kids at this point. <laughs> if if you go to college and your parents pay 100% of your college education, that's called glorified high school. The only difference is mommy's not there to wake you up each morning so you can go to class. Because your role is nothing more than going to school, going to class, going to the library, there's there's nothing impressive about the fact that you went to some classes that your parents paid for and you sat there, took a test, studied, whatever the case may be. Well, that's all you had to do. And, and so, you know, but the, the, the kid that went to college and worked 40 hours a week and still graduated with, with some student loan debt and everything, you know, that's a little more impressive because there, there was something that went into it. But my kids, no, you're, you're going to go to college and you're not going to have anything to worry about. You're going to have a car. You're going to have an apartment. You're going to have some spending money. So ah, no, I'm not impressed that you went out and got a degree. <laughs> so, you believe, so, you, so you believe in education, but it's a question of what type of education or yes. what, the pur the, what the purpose is, because what you're doing with the kids from disadvantaged backgrounds is you're, you're educating them about life, not, not like necessarily book learning. And I'm, I'd like to reflect on two very separate there are two questions they're very separate one is about le leadership and what sort of what you look for in terms of how to lead people because you've had very different role models in your life um and the other is also about where you're going next in your life that you you because i've you're so well known now you could make a living being a, a motivational speaker if you wanted to you could probably grow scribe up and you could keep it going it's a unlimited vast market for successful people who want to have their stories told in the way that because you didn't actually say what scribe does so maybe that's three questions um, right. um, um, but i'm i'm curious about how you might see your future evolving um your reflections on leadership and along the way why not why not why not tell our listeners what scribe does we might find you a customer for goodness sake all right so my 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 thoughts on leadership um i'm i'm a true believer in what's called servant leadership. I, I know that's an overused term and a lot of people use it and they don't serve anything but them damn selves. Uh, and, but uh, truly put people first. That, that's our number one value, people. Our number two principle, do right by people. I, I deeply believe three things, people, process, profits, keep them in that order. If you have great people, you can build great process, you can make great profits. And, and that's just the order that never put profits in front of people, never put process in front of people, always do right by people. 
it, it's it's number one. And and I say this to to people all the time as well. Three letters after your name don't make you a leader. And and I made the joke the other day. I said, look, man, I had three letters after my name long before CEO. And somebody said, what? I go GED. You know, so it's uh, for for those that don't know, I I call it a good enough diploma. Uh, It's an uh, tell them what it is for the non-American. Yeah, I don't know what GED means. Uh, It is it's a uh, general equivalent uh, diploma, meaning you didn't actually graduate high school, but you you did just enough that we're going to give this to you. It's kind of like a um, it's kind of like second place if you (laughs) so uh, but it's. I, I don't, for me, leadership is, is truly putting people first. I, I serve. If you, if you come and you look at some of the things that we do here, uh, I always say no one works for me. People work with me. I'm no one's boss. We, we work together. I, I'm only as good as the great people I work with. So as, as long as those, as those folks stay great, then I can be good. When those folks become exceptional, but then I can be great but they will always be three steps a, a ahead of me. Um, you know, l- little things that we do. I'm at the bottom of our website. You all know this. You go to most company websites, first thing you see on the About Us page, uh, you see the C-suite executives, the founders, the, the uh, VPs, chairmen, all that good stuff. Mm-mm. I'm at the bottom. If you're looking for the CEO of Scribe, he's at the bottom. Why? Because he's here to serve and support. So that just means that my role is the biggest foundational piece in the company to serve the people I work with. And give us the elevator pitch on Scribe. Actually, I was talking to a uh, another um, guest and he was saying, cause I, I was giving my version of it, but I don't want to give you, you have to do it. But he was, uh, he, he was like, oh, tell me about like, I wanted to, like, he was interested. Like he, he was interested <laughs> in like, cause he also had, like, we, we try to get people with interesting stories. So he was right, right away interested. So what, what kind of, so tell us a bit like what you like, it's, it's for me, it's like publishing disrupted. It's a disruption of the totally. publishing industry, but, 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 but give your, give it the, the, the elevator pitch. So we help authors write market and publish their, their books. And in, in many different forms, some, some people come to us and they've already got their manuscript uh, written out. So they need us to help them uh, with the interior layout, the cover design, getting it up on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Waterstones. And so they need us to help them do that. Great. Then there's people who they have their book in their head, but they have no clue how to put it on paper. So we sit with them and we have them speak their book out to us. Give us the content, give us the story, the details that make for a great book then we help them make it structure, make it flow correctly, do the proofreading, the editing, uh, punctuation, all of that good stuff. Uh, and then we do the, the, the publishing as well. We've worked with over 1,800 authors, uh, a couple of our big ones, uh, the Navy SEAL David Goggins. We published yeah, he's book. awesome. <laughs> yeah, we, we did his book. Uh, that is the second best-selling memoir of all time uh, behind Michelle Obama. Uh, we've worked with the Nobel uh, Peace Prize Committee, Nassim Taleb. Uh, so we, we've got several big names, but that's only about 2% of our, our business. The great majority of our business are uh, consultants, business owners, entrepreneurs, CEOs who, who are writing their book for credibility, thought leadership, lead generation. And you um, help with um, promotion. I mean, right? I mean, isn't that Yes, the big we do the marketing. Is- yeah, write, publish, and market the books. So we, we market the books for people. 
Uh, we, we help them get the, the book out to the world so people know who they are, get them on Amazon, bestsellers, Wall Street. We've got 17 uh, bestselling authors from Wall Street Journal to New York Times, USA Today. So yeah, uh, we, we do, do it all from, from start to finish, take the book, publish it, market it. Uh, and we even do the ongoing marketing to, to keep it going. And so, well, th thank you for that. And obviously, if anyone's listening, we'll put a link to that in the, sh in the show notes so that people who want to buy your services can. And that would be our way of saying thank you to you. But <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to ask about the future. Do you, do you have like, and on, let's talk to about money because you've like, obviously you've, you're doing quite well, I hope. I hope you're continuing to be successful. You're not going to be wiped out by doing stupid stuff on the stock market. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like shorting stocks or go, go haywire or, 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 or stuff like that. But in terms of your future motivations and what you'd like to be doing, you're serving, you're writing a book, so you could be a motivational speaker. Do you, do you have a sense of what your future career is going to, how it's going to go or are you taking it one year at a time? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a combination. You, you nailed it. I, I do the, uh, I, I humbly tell people I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm a what's possible speaker. I'm not looking to motivate anybody. Uh, if you want motivation, go to a Tony Robbins conference uh, because motivation to me is, is kind of, again, going back to the, the, uh, the way I grew up. Motivation to me is like a drug. You, you get a hit and you're motivated for a week and then you need another conference and you need another motivational speak. I'm a what's possible speaker. I want people to see what's possible. I want people to see that it's possible to come from my background and still succeed in life. So I always refer to myself as a what's possible speaker. And, and I never in a million years thought that I would find myself as, as a speaker and getting on stage and telling my story. So that, that's been incredibly humbling. But for where, where do I want to go? Um, I, I'm not sure if you gentlemen know who Charlie Munger is, Warren Buffett's partner. Yep. I want to be very similar to Charlie Munger. He, Charlie Munger is like 96 years old. His glasses are so thick. I swear he can see the future. Um, it, it's, but he's still in the game. He still goes to work. He's still making decisions, still loves what he does. And that's where I, I look at. I love business. I, I'm a constant student of business. I want to keep learning. Big fan of Bob Iger and what he did with Disney. I love the Costco business model. But yeah, I just study how do you become more efficient? How do you become more effective? How can you become a better leader? How do you serve people in a, in a better fashion? And I, I literally made this comment yesterday. It's funny you said this. I sent, um, we use Slack as an internal communication tool. I Slack this to, to a couple of our, our tribe members. I said, look, I, by the grace of God, I will die at my desk or sharing knowledge to some with someone at my desk, <laughs> and that and that's I, I love what I do. So it is true. So, sorry. so so even if you make like tens of millions or hundreds of, you're not making money. You want the money for the security for your family, but you're basically working because you love being in business, not not to make some financial target and go and sit on a super yacht somewhere. No, no, I, I have zero desire to to go sit on a, a super yacht. I, now, I can't sit there and say that I won't ever, you know, take my family on a super yacht, you know, week vacation. But uh, <laughs> I don't have a, a desire to own a $300 million yacht. Uh, I, I have found that with the money, you can do great things in giving back to communities. And I find that to be far more powerful than to have 
numerous homes throughout the country. You know, don't get me wrong. We, my, my wife and I are in the middle of, of uh, planning and building our, our dream home. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not embarrassed to say it, especially from where I come from. It's not a small home. And, but I, I love the fact that I can provide that for my family, for, for my children, my wife. Uh, but I, I have no desire to just continue to accumulate wealth. I, I want it to be wealth that can be allocated to, to other people who too want to succeed in life. I don't, I don't want to just give it to, to chair. I want to, I want to help people who want to help themselves. You want to deploy it. Yes. Deploy it so that people can, uh, so that people, yeah, I, I'm with you on that lack of accumulation. Like, you know, it's nice to have nice stuff, but like, what are you going to do with it all? I mean, like, why do you yeah. want to have, what's he going to do with all that stuff? Yeah. So I'm really conscious of your time. I, 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 I have a question that I like to ask toward the end. And I have a feeling that um, it's, a, it's, it's different with you. So I like to ask about luck because. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> no, but, but see, it's different with you because, you know, because, you know, there is luck there, in, in most people's lives, things that happen. And, you know, and, and, and basically how much basically the, the question is basically how much of your success is due to your hard work and your and your skills and your perseverance versus circumstance. And, and that would be like the general question I would ask, like the typical like sort of person, but you actually, I would from, like, from my perspective at the beginning, you had quite a bad, a bit of bad luck I mean, in, in, the, in the beginning. So, I mean, like, I don't even know, like, uh, it, but anyway, I want to ask the question anyway, because I think it's useful for people to, because people, you know, it, it's fine for us again, like we, we've had some success. Very often people say, think that luck, luck is a, luck is, but that's what people think. So I luck, like luck, <laughs> luck is a dirty word. Luck is a dirty word. You may as well have said F you to me. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's literally the, the equivalent. I, I, I don't know. Matter of fact, you, you all have mentioned you, you heard me on a, a different podcast. So you, you yeah. probably heard me say this. And so I'll, yeah, I'll I go, heard it. I heard it. Yeah. I'll go through the question. <laughs> so there's three words that, that I eliminated from my vocabulary as a kid. I eliminated hope, I eliminated yeah. wish, and I yeah. damn sure eliminated luck. <laughs> and so uh, hope, why, why did I eliminate those words? Uh, hope, when I was a kid and I would hope my dad would come pick me up, he never showed. When I would hope there was something to eat when I got home, never produced anything. So I stopped hoping and I, I changed the word to belief because I, if you believe in something, you have to execute. If you truly believe it, you have to go out and execute. And, and I, I, I got a, a friend of mine, he's, he's a pastor, and he, he says to me, he goes, Javon, I, I said hope 16 times last week in my Sunday, Sunday morning sermon. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, okay. I go, well, watch this. Do you want me to hope there's a God or do you want <laughs> me to believe there's a God? And, and, he's, and he looks at me, he's a pastor, and he looks at me and he goes, damn. <laughs> he, he said, I never thought of it that way. And, and I expressed to him, I said, look, if I believe there's a God, I got to commit to a godly lifestyle. But if I just kind of hope there's one, ah, there's no, it's non-committal. But you know, so you, you, if you believe you can achieve your dreams and goals, if you believe you can have the big house, if you believe you can have the career, then you have to go execute. And so I, I stopped hoping, wishing, wishing is a horrible word. Uh, that's, that's so just 
because it doesn't do anything. Oh, I wish I had a house that big. Oh, I, I wish I was in shape. Um, it doesn't do anything. You can wish all day, nothing, nothing happens. And again, I said this earlier, I got four kids, seven, five, three, and two. So we got a lot of birthdays in my house. When the birthday cake hits the table, we do not say make a wish when you blow out the candles. We say make a goal because wishing does not produce anything. So I teach my kids to make a goal because you can wish all day and nothing is going to happen. And then luck, well, as you said, you know my background. There was nothing lucky about it. So luck got thrown out the window a long time ago. And, and when people try to say, oh, well, the, the person who won the, the $900 million lottery, they were lucky. No, they weren't. They went and bought a ticket. They executed. <laughs> Good. Well, well, I, I, as Kim said, we're very conscious of your time. I, uh, Javon, I got your name right, Javon. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm 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 dual nationality, Polish, British, but I I like it when I get something right. Um, is there any closing thing you'd like to share, like some insight to anyone listening? We have people all over the world. Quite often, they're educated upper middle class people, but it, anyone can listen on a podcast. Is, and if you wanted to share something, maybe you haven't said already, or emphasize something that's particularly important to you, any closing thoughts to share? Uh, the, the big one that I would share, and I believe this is universal, regardless if you're here in the States or anywhere else in the world, is, you know, we there, there's this big thing now called work-life balance, work-life balance. And I just find it to be interesting that when you say those words, everybody focuses on the work aspect. Don't work 60, 70 hours a week. Don't check your emails first thing in the morning. We should only have a four-day work week. It's work, you know, everyone attacks work. No one attacks their, their, the life part of it. How about you don't binge watch Friday through Sunday and then wake up mad Monday because you haven't achieved your dream, dreams and goals? How about you don't go to the bar Thursday through Sunday and then wake up mad because you haven't achieved your dreams and goals? So, you know, also take account of your life. When's a, think about this. When's the last time somebody said to you, oh, my God, I, I've been studied my, my retirement plan all weekend and, and we just dove into it. No, that's all we did. The whole weekend was study our retirement plan. No one says that. Um, and so I, I for me, to, to eliminate distractions, I've taken my life down to what I call five pillars. God, health family, business, and investing. Everybody's going to have their own pillars, but figure out what your pillars are, what means the most to you, and don't let anything else get in the way. Don't let anything else distract you. Uh, here in, in the, the States, I love the NFL, what, what we call football, but you know, unless Tom Brady is going to send me part of his $20 million a year salary, I don't care that he's going to, to the Super Bowl. So I don't watch it. I love to play golf. But it takes four and a half hours. I've got four little kids. I'd rather have that four and a half hours with my children. So I don't let things distract me. And then the last piece that I would say to this is that there is no success without sacrifice. You will have to sacrifice something in order to achieve the success that you're after. And I give this example to people at the highest levels, the highest levels, People sacrifice here in the States, uh, in NBA, everyone knows who LeBron James is. He makes $100 million a year. He has his own shoe, won championships, so on and so forth. But when LeBron James is on an 11-game road trip with, his, with the team, 
he's not at home. He's sacrificing time with his family, his kids. He's not there for their activities, their games. He doesn't get to see that. That's a sacrifice. When he's in the, the, the gym shooting a thousand free throws, that's sacrifice. And then I use this example. If you look at the last uh, U.S. presidents, uh, Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama, all three had young children when they went into office, young daughters. You can best believe they missed a lot of activities, a lot of dinners, a lot of tuck-ins at night, a lot of book readings. They sacrificed for the greater good of the success of their careers to achieve what they wanted to achieve. There is zero success without sacrifice. Yeah, agreed. What a, what a great way to end. Well, it's been an honor to interview you, really. I, I feel like I meet a lot of people in my life. I'd, I've never met someone with your background who's so committed to sharing their experience and their knowledge. And so so thank you. Very, I'd just like to end this by saying thank you very much. It's been a privilege. And if there's anything that I can do to help you with your goals, just let me know and I'll do my best to do it. All right, so here's here's my ask of you, Richard, because you said you've never met anyone like me. I've never met anyone whose father went to Oxford and they went to Cambridge. So you're 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 my first. So here's what I would ask: when the day comes that I make it over to to Europe, I would love to go visit the Cambridge Library and just to see what that looks like. That would be amazing. Well, I have to tell you that the way Cambridge works, the University Library in Cambridge is a really ugly building out of the centre, and the colleges which are, it's hard to describe. There are lots of separate colleges in the center of the city which have beautiful libraries. So be careful what you ask for. I will do that for you. Um, and I, I'm assuming it's safe to travel. I will fly to the UK, especially to Cambridge or Oxford where, and they're beautiful, you, you, you choose. And because I, I think I've got the contacts to make, that, to make that happen. I'll give you a personal tour. Excellent. Yeah, from my perspective, also super interesting story, very inspirational. And if you can share, um, because I was interested in your sort of giving back initiatives. I don't know if there's any way where you can get that. Maybe after we can email it to us or somewhere we can put, also put that in the uh, um, show notes. Uh, and I, I'm just personally interested in that because um, it really speaks to me um, what you're saying. Um, and I don't know if you, if you have a structured way of doing any of that, any of that help any of that charity work but uh i'm 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 uh i i i would i would be interested in that yeah it's it's real simple and i don't make it too hard there's a, a couple of things that, that i do um you you can with, with the youth uh juvenile systems they they are itching for someone to give them a field trip give, give let those kids come and tour your office when, when we open back up obviously um, right so, so you can see what's possible you know, okay. I, I, okay, here, I'll give you one. Uh, when, when I was at the software company, uh, I brought the, the juveniles uh, over there uh, to the software company. I wanted them to see what this, this software office looked like, you know, double monitors throughout, uh, code on the, on the whiteboards, everything. They had never seen it. Some of these kids had never been in an office building. Some had never been in an elevator. So this was their first time experiencing this. And again, how can I aspire to be something when I don't even know what exists out there? My favorite thing of this, one of those kids ended up getting out of juvenile. He ended up going to junior college. He then got accepted to a four-year university. He got his computer science degree. He's now a software developer and he makes about $150,000 a year. And he's got over $50,000 in his 401k retirement plan. 
Why? Sounds I, like you're a prodigy. A my kind of guy. My <laughs> guy. You know, and, it, and it's funny. Here's the thing. I didn't have anything to do with that other than he got to see possibility. Yeah. Yeah, we have an office in, Col in Boulder, Colorado. That I think we can, I think we can set that up uh, out there. That's a good idea, actually. All right. Well, anyway, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It was really, really insightful, a lot of fun, and I'm sure the viewers and listeners are going to enjoy it. So, thanks, gentlemen. A lot. I appreciate it. You all take care. Stay safe. Thank you thanks. very much.